There once were two butterflies, colorful and majestic monarchs, who were side by side on a tree branch. One had just emerged from its ruptured cocoon when the other one stopped by for a second. Come fly with me, said the older one. But the other said, caterpillars can't fly. But you're not a caterpillar anymore, said the first, flexing its wings, displaying the array of colors textured on them. Once you're a butterfly, your caterpillar days are over. Don't be silly, said the other. We were born caterpillars and will always be caterpillars. That's just the way it is. Well, then why did the maker see fit to give us these wings, replied the elder butterfly. The younger butterfly thought for a moment and said, I don't know, probably some sort of cruel joke, I suppose. He did the same thing to the ostrich, you know. Nonsense, said the first. Look at all the other butterflies. They're flying. What do you say to that? But the young butterfly looked out over the meadow and said, They're not flying. They're just being blown around by the wind. Those fools, can't they see it's dangerous? They're easy prey for hungry birds. I'll stick to crawling and climbing, thank you very much. It may be slow, but it's safe and sure. It may be slow, safe, and sure, replied the elder butterfly, but it's unnatural. Butterflies fly. That's just the way the maker designed us. That's our role, our purpose, our function, to dance on the winds of the air, to play tag with dandelion seeds, to inspire awe and wonder, to fascinate those who notice us. Then he took off into the air, leaving his young companion on the branch. The mature, older butterfly was able to experience the satisfying sensation of joy of being willing to stretch his wings and take flight. He was able to be alive. This joy came because he knew the maker's purpose for him was to inspire, fascinate, and add a note of grace to this world. This is the picture of the Christian who has just been born again by the grace of God and is experiencing the abundant life that comes with it. But how often we find ourselves being like the other, other butterfly. Were we reborn from being a caterpillar into this new life? Yet we want to hold on to our old way of living, our old routines, our old habits, or the things that we put to death when we were reborn into this new life. We don't believe we are no longer caterpillars. We believe we'll always be our old selves. We don't know how to operate as butterflies because we don't know anything other than living as caterpillars. So we decide to stay on the branch. But our text this morning tells us of hundreds of other butterflies in the past are beckoning us to imitate them and take a leap of faith to experience the abundant life that they did. This week is unique in the life of Given Baptist Church as we take the time to consider our spiritual roots that were planted by people from our church, family, decades, and even centuries ago. We join the city of Gibbon in commemorating the city's 150th birthday by remembering the women and men in our civic history. But as a church, it is significant for us to particularly pause on occasion to reflect upon the past, to better engage our present, to then move on into the future. And so while our guest speaker, unfortunately, cannot be here this morning, you're stuck with me. So I apologize if I disappoint you. But while my participation in your corporate history is trivial in the grand scheme of things, I hope I can offer some thoughts to you this morning to consider how our past impacts our present, but then how you can leave a mark in the history of Gibbon Baptist Church.
This morning, I want to look at a few of the more known verses in the book of Hebrews. Hebrews has a lot of bumper sticker, wall decoration, Bible verses, and verses 1 through 3 of chapter 12 is perhaps no exception. Perhaps you've read them before. Coming right before the famous Hall of Fame of Faith in chapter 11, the author of Hebrews pivots to the apex of his argument. This preacher is reaching a climactic point in verses 1 through 3, and I think his argument still rings true just to us just as much as it did back then. That's what I want to look at this morning. This Sunday is set aside for this special occasion to reflect upon the past, evaluate our present, but ultimately look to Jesus for our future. I hope you'll lean in this morning to what the Holy Spirit has to say to us. The preacher of the book of Hebrews has arrived, like I said, at this climactic point in his sermon. The preacher has been talking extensively about the role of faith in the life of a believer, and he began discussing how the sacrifice of Jesus that we celebrated last week at Good Friday allows all believers sufficient confidence or faith to draw near to a holy God. Chapter 10, verse 22 says, Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. The preacher then moves to exhort the community not to wither away under persecution and external pressure that they may are seeming to face right there at that moment, but they should lay claim to this faith, more than, which is more than ample to bring them through their present suffering. He tells them in chapter 10, verse 35 through 36, But we are not those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and persevere, pr- preserve their souls. This is the backdrop for arguably the most recognized part of the book of Hebrews. I mentioned it before. Many label this the hall of fame of faith. It's a long monologue talking about individuals or group of people who demonstrate a noteworthy faith that the listeners would have recognized from their Sunday school classes. People of old who received commendation from the, by the preacher, people or groups of people who had faith in God for things that they could not see in their immediate time or comprehend. Verse 1 of chapter 11 tells us assurance of things hoped for, the conviction, conviction of things unseen. And when you read chapter 11, it's a list of kind of the who's who of the Old Testament heroes and heroines. The people who made the author of Hebrews shortlist likely have a VeggieTales movie made to retell their story today. For many of the names are mentioned or even mentioned more than once are likely you know a story or two about them. Starting from Genesis and ending with the prophets, the author of Hebrew covers quite a lot of ground and cherry-picking prominent men and women of faith. You probably heard of Abraham because Father Abraham had many sons and many sons had Father Abraham and I am one of them and so are you. So let's just praise the Lord. Right arm. Oh, sorry, got sidetracked there with a children's church nursery rhyme. But the preacher compliments Abraham for obeying the call of God to leave Ur where he was and to venture into unknown, unseen land based solely on trusting the one who called him. He is praised for the testing of his faith. You remember back in Genesis chapter 22, Abraham was willing to put to death his son Isaac. He was willing to put to death the long-awaited promise he'd received in the form of his heir. Abraham was willing to surrender his son to God in faith. And the author of Hebrews commends Abraham for that demonstration of faith. You've probably heard of Moses 
Moses was a big deal to the Jewish and God-fearing converts of Christianity, so it's no wonder that he makes the list here for a variety of reasons. His decision to reject being in line for the throne of Pharaoh in Egypt, his choice to confront the fury of the king of Egypt on the behalf of the Israelites, which begrudgingly, I might add, the preacher doesn't add that here, but him and along with the children of Israel, their faith to sprinkle the blood over the door frames at Passover, they're all accounted for by the preacher of Hebrews as hallmarks of strong faith. But Abraham and Moses are just the big dogs that are mentioned here in the, by the author of Hebrews. Reread chapter 11 and you'll see other names that are mentioned. Abel, Enoch, Noah, Sarah, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses' parents, the children of Israel as a whole. Even Rahab is mentioned. Rahab, a female foreigner belonging to the Canaanite city of Jericho, a prostitute no less, is among the counted as having commendable faith. Praiseworthy demonstrations of faith and God are not limited to only men, nor are those who just belong to the lineage of Abraham because even Gentiles make the cut. The preacher of Hebrews caps us off with saying in verse 32, And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell you of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, and of David, of Samuel, and the prophets. Time doesn't allow for the speaker in Hebrews to elaborate any further because he knows that he's made his point. There's a wide swath and variety of people of commendable faith in the pages of what we call the Old Testament. Men and women of faith in the past who were willing to do extraordinary things, but were also willing to suffer, be humiliated, be tortured, and even be martyred for the faith they clung to. Yet they all share one thing in common. None of them received the thing for which they originally placed their faith in in the first place. Because Hebrews tells us in chapter, uh, chapter 11, verse 39, yet all of these, though they were commended for their faith, did not receive what was promised. They are remembered and praised for the faith they demonstrated, but in the end, it was not in God's plan for them to receive what was promised to them. They did not receive the promise. It's not due to any flaw in their faith. Rather, it was just not. It was due to the unfolding purposes of God. It wasn't time yet. Putting faith in God was building to something. If you flip through the history book of the, old, of the people of God, it's all building and moving towards the sacrifice and intercession of God's own son seen in the person of Jesus Christ. Because because God provided something better, verse 40 tells us. This is not to say that we on this side of the cross are better off than those before the arrival of Jesus, but rather we see the faith of those in the Old Testament was satisfactory faith in a different but also exemplary way in the same God who is seen in the person of Jesus Christ. What we see, what we see is the longevity and the diversity in the story of faith when reading the testimonies of our spiritual forebears in the Old Testament. I say all of this to preface our text this morning because I think it's imperative to capture what the preacher of Hebrews means when he gets to the familiar adage, cloud of witnesses. Perhaps you're familiar with this imagery from Scripture. But what does Hebrews mean? The preacher has just pivoted with saying, therefore, in verse 1 of chapter 12, meaning everything that he's previously said up to this point needs to be accounted for to understand the penultimate point concerning the inhabitants of this cloud. All those Old Testament examples and pillars of faith that were previously mentioned or unmentioned in chapter 11 surround the present-day Christians as they undertake their own journeys and struggles of walking by faith with God. Let me try to illustrate what I think the preacher of Hebrews is trying to say. Imagine in your mind the last sporting event you attended. 
I know it seems like ancient history to recall a major public sporting event you may have attended, but put yourself in the setting of an athletic event with spectators. Perhaps it's a Gibbon high school basketball game or a Tri-City Storm hockey game. Or maybe you've been down at Kauffman Stadium to see the Kansas City Royals play. But the imagery of a cloud here is meant to evoke pictures of spectators watching an athletic event. The cloud of witnesses are all seated in the grandstands because they're no longer competing in the event because they've already finished their time participating. They are surrounding and watching us compete now. The metaphor the preacher of Hebrews uses is a race. The cloud of witnesses are seated in the stands of a race that is perpetually happening throughout history. They get to watch contemporary Christians. They get to watch us participate in the race of faith. God has already approved and confirmed the faithfulness of those in the past, and they now gather around us for whom the race is not finished. They are spectators whose presence exercises a strong positive influence on us. In a sense, they're a pep squad. By the legacy and testimony of their life stories in the past, they provide encouragement to those presently running. Their stories are meant to offer us strength as we now run the same kind of race they did. As we run this race, we peek up at the grandstands, seeing the men and women of faith that have gone before us that both educate us on what it means to run because they've already done it. But they also invigorate us to keep going. There's a story about French farmers in the early 1800s. They were kept alive by what some came to call the hundred-year-old soup. Each week, to a pot which seemed to simmer in the back of the kitchen stove, the farmer's wife would add whatever was available. Sometimes it would be a carrot and sometimes an onion, but sometimes no more than a few dandelions. But each week, something would be added with a little more water, and the soup never stopped simmering. It was always there. And when the eldest daughter left to set up homekeeping, included in her dowry was a little pot of that soup taken from the back stove and shared. When French immigrants arrived in America, those from the southeast rural area of France carried their little pot of 100-year-old soup with them. Some soup eaten today in South Carolina among those of French descent derives from that 100-year-old soup. The church of Jesus Christ has been boiling for over 2,000 years, and many ingredients have been added, and many people have been fed. It's ever old, but also yet ever new. It is constant life-giving gift from the generations that have preceded us, and it contains, can still be sampled today by those interested in tasting it. The cloud of witnesses still surrounds us today, and we're still able to tap into that reservoir of grace There are a plethora of brothers and sisters in Christ in the past that have already gone down similar roads that we've gone down, experiencing similar doubts with God that we have, struggled with the same fears that we have, and more. Human nature and human interactions with God don't change over time, folks. And in our information age, we have the privilege of learning about the marathons of faith already run by our spiritual ancestors that include those on the pages of Scripture But I would also include men and women from church history, including our own local church history here at Given Baptist Church. But have you considered when you'll join that cloud? 
How you live your life right now is a testament to what it means to be a follower of Christ. And when Christians in the future will look back on the pages of church history being written right now in our lifetimes, what will they find? Have you ever considered that? Have you ever thought about your spiritual legacy? I'm not talking about your professional or your civic legacy. I'm talking about your spiritual legacy. What story are you writing today? You get to decide how people will remember you. Or to say it another way, in a way, in the way you conduct your life right now determines the level and degree to which those in the future will remember you. You don't get to say in what they'll remember because people recall and forget a lot of stuff, but you get to decide right now how they will remember you. Will you be numbered among the cloud of witnesses or not? What kind of legacy do you intend to leave behind? When people give your eulogy, what will they say about you? What will they say about your faith? What impact do you want to leave? It's your choice. I love the lyrics of a Nicole Norman song called Legacy. And if you get a chance, I encourage you to listen to it sometimes. The chorus says, I want to leave a legacy. How will they remember me? Did I choose to love? Did I point to you? To make a mark on things, I want to leave an offering, a child of mercy and grace who blessed your name unapologetically and leave that kind of legacy. But while Hebrews tells us about previous runners, it also calls us to start running ourselves. In light of others in the past, we need to imitate them and laying aside anything that weighs us down. Don't picture in your mind weights used in a gym to build muscle. That's not what the Hebrew, Hebrews is going for here. Rather, think of any unnecessary baggage that might encumber someone running, whether it be body fat or bulky clothing. I may not be a marathon runner myself, but I know plenty of long-distance cross-country runners, and the last thing they want is any extra unnecessary poundage dragging them down. So it's logical that if you're going to run well, that you need to dispose of anything and everything unnecessary to run this race effectively and well. But the preacher of Hebrews does not specify what this weight is meant to represent. He just genuinely says, lay aside sin which lings so closely. He leaves it open to interpretation. Perhaps this is intentional. I wager you and I know exactly what things in our lives hamper our ability to run the race of faith well. Whether it be the present reality of a recurring defeat by sinful temptations in our lives. Perhaps it's poisonous relationships with a person, a group of people, or idols. Maybe it's unreleased guilt from sin that you've already been set free from. Or maybe it's something else. What is weighing you down Whatever it is, the author of Hebrews tells us to set it aside and start booking it like we've, never gone, like we've never done before. Like those that have gone before us, though they were not perfect, they paved the way by their example. So let us follow in their footsteps with the same kind of endurance they had. That is the source of their success according to the author of Hebrews. Perseverance. They sufficiently completed the race of faith because they had perseverance. They pressed on the arduous race of faith despite the obstacles and hostile forces that popped up because they had the grace of endurance to keep running. 
When hardships, doubt, humiliation, loneliness, and even the threat of death came into their running path, they pressed on without skipping a beat. Despite never seeing the promise they were given in their lifetime, they were willing to keep running and persevere until the last lap. And the preacher of Hebrews wants us to grab hold of that same kind of endurance and run. The race is set before us, Hebrews tells us. Some of us this morning need to simply start running, but you're hesitant. You don't feel like you're ready or qualified. You don't feel like you know enough or have got your life in order yet. But let me tell you a secret that many of those folks in the cloud were in the same boat you were, but they started running anyway. What is stopping you from running like those in the past did? What is keeping you from setting yourself free from that weight that encumbers you and running with the fullness of faith toward Jesus? The invitation is always open for you to start running. Perhaps you would say you've already been running. You've been running for a long time. In fact, you've been running so long that running has become second nature to you. Why have you stopped? Why has your pace slowed down compared to when you started? Have you stumbled across too many roadblocks or setbacks that you're ready to call it quits? What will it take for you to keep running? I can assure you that many in the cloud of witnesses were in your shoes a time or two. But can I speak, can I speak to you folks for a second this morning? When I think of racing, my mind instantly jumps to Mario Kart. Now, has anyone ever played or heard of Mario Kart? Am I? Thank you. Mario Kart is great. You can skip through another photo. Let me get to the Mario Kart I'm thinking of. Another photo. Yes. Mario Kart 64 on the Nintendo 64 was the first video game I ever played. And I guarantee you all in this room, I can beat every single one of you in, on Mario Kart. I double dog dare any of you. Yes, that's being prideful. I'll ask for forgiveness later. But I confess that as a Mario Kart veteran, nothing is more irritating than the items that you can use to attack other opponents while racing. Ranging from banana peels that can trip up other racers, to red shells that you can throw that can hone in on other racers, or the dreaded blue shell that will always attack who's ever in first place. But nothing is quite as infuriating as being in first the entire race and your little brother throws an item and knocks you out and you get in last and he takes first place. Nothing is more irritating than running or racing in Mario Kart to just be knocked off by an item like that. I can only imagine how this racer felt to be in first the entire time and she gets to the very end and then this happens to her. Play the video. hurts my soul. Oh, it hurts my soul. You don't know how irritating that would be. But would you keep going? Would you still finish the race? 
Unlike Mario Kart, when it comes to the race we're talking about, it's not necessarily about coming in first, it's just simply about finishing it. What's hindering you from continuing on? Is it one too many red shells? I think what, think what keeps us from persevering are the memories and experiences of obstacles that occurred in our past that inhibited us or completely stunted our running. Or it's the fear of potential pain in the first place that bars us from continuing to run. Like in Mario Kart, there are banana peels and blue shells that will inevitably hit us in life, but we have to make a conscious decision that to one, we have to keep racing instead of rage quitting and pressing pause, as I'm guilty of doing in Mario Kart from time to time. I don't mean to downplay or trivialize the painful things in life with this silly little illustration, but I'm trying to illustrate is that you have to be willing to keep racing despite inevitable struggles. We do not have to look far to see that our spiritual forefathers and foremothers likely experienced the kind of pain, confusion, and disappointment that we may feel this morning when it comes to having faith in Jesus. And they may have dealt with even far worse things than we can even imagine, but they may have had similar feelings that you are having this morning right now. But their testimony tells us to not stop running the race despite what obstacles may we may face. When hardships, pain, and even persecution arises along a race of faith, will you persevere and keep going? The author of Hebrews knows the race of faith is not easy. He knows there will be times when you want to call it quits or question whether it's worth racing at all in the first place. So he reminds us of the spectators, egging us on. He reminds us where to look for encouragement and strength during our race of faith. We see their stories and testimonies from their time running the race, and we can glean from them. We see their ups and downs, their successes and failures. We see their example of not being weighed down by anything when it comes to faith and the promises of God. We see their endurance. And that's ultimately what, the, what Hebrews wants us to apply in our own lives. Though you may not see tangible evidence of your faith, keep going. Though you may slip on a banana peel a time or two, keep going. Keep running. It'll be worth it in the end. Put off all that encumbers you and run. But there's ultimately somewhere else Hebrews tells us to look for strength with running the race and that is the person of Jesus. Because here's the thing about running the race of faith. You can't do it constantly looking at the cheering section or looking your, over your shoulder at the other runners. And while I'm the first proponent of learning from our history, that is actually not how the race of faith is intended to be run. It's helpful to look at the saints that have passed on before us from time to time, but that can't prioritize our complete focus because we have to keep looking ahead and in front of us. But we can't be completely looking over our shoulders at the other runners because you probably know the last thing you want to do as a competitor in a sprint or a cross-country run is to look over your shoulder at the other competitors. We're not supposed to compare our race progress with the progress of others. But the preacher of Hebrews tells us where we are to look ahead at, and that's at Jesus. Looking at Jesus. Literally, the original Greek is better translated, looking away to, which implies looking away from anyone or anything else, but concentrating solely on Jesus. The NIV translates this as fixing our eyes on Jesus. The author of Hebrews is instructing us 
to pay full attention to Jesus for guidance and assistance. Why? Because he's the pioneer, the originator, the founder of our faith. He was there at the beginning of the race. He started the race. But more than that, he is the perfecter of our faith. He not only initiated the race, but he also perfectly ran the same race we now run. He flawlessly finished it. He brought it to its intended completion. Jesus accomplished this by taking on human nature, living a full, sinless human life, but then enduring the cross. As Jesus goes to death on the cross in obedience to the Father, what a supreme example of faith he is for us. Jesus perfectly exemplified for us how to run the race while enduring suffering. While our spiritual ancestors modeled endurance, Jesus did it better. Jesus knew the joy that came from completing the race, but he also knew fully that it would involve coming into contact with pain and suffering. And Jesus was willing to endure it anyway for the joy that was set before him. And while our human ancestors stumbled and maybe even fell away from the race path, Jesus never did. He fully and perfectly ran the race and has completed it, which is allowing him to take his rightful place at the right hand of the throne of God. We must follow the example of Jesus. Like Jesus, we must endure the potential reality of pain that accompanies running this race. Like Jesus, we must keep our eye on the prize of the unseen reward of completing the race, which is being in the presence of an almighty God. Like Jesus, we must disregard the shame that comes with taking up our cross daily. Consider him, the preacher of Hebrews implores. Consider him. Not just the cloud of witnesses and their library of stories, but we are told to consider above all the example of one individual, Jesus Christ. And in doing so, we will not only we will not bail out early from running the race of faith, like the speaker of Hebrews says, but we will, we will do so, verse 3 tells us, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. This is what is so unique about our God. He identifies completely with our pain and hurt of running this long-distance race because he himself did it as well. Our God knows exactly the ups and downs from running this race because he himself did it as well. He is not asking us to go run a race. He's not willing to run himself. And if we look at his example, we have a better chance of not passing out of grow, or growing exhausted or calling it quits. Run looking at Jesus. Run looking at our God. Run and don't give up because God has not given up on you. He's there waiting at the finish line. He knows this race of faith is taxing. He knows because he's been there before. He longs to place the crown of righteousness on you and to tell you, well done, good and faithful servant. But you've got to hold on. You've got to persevere.